Welcome to season five of Outstanding Women Leaders, Witty and Wise Conversations. I'm your host, Katie Ellis, founder and chief owl at Outstanding Women Leaders Professional Coaching and Podcast, an organization dedicated to empowering you in leadership, relationships, and life. Owl is on a mission to host 100 million witty and wise conversations that inspire you, disrupt the way leaders think, and stir your soul into aligned action. That inspiration today begins with a set of rules to guide our conversation. Nobody gets to be wrong. Nobody gets to be right. Everybody gets to be vulnerable. More importantly, everything is included. If the cat walks in, your phone rings, it's going on the podcast. We do not edit here. This conversation is exactly what it needs to be in this moment in time. We've asked our guests to join us via video to allow us to create authentic connection. Eyes are the window to the soul. You will be seen here. You will be heard there is space for you. When this conversation comes to a close, I will ask our guests three questions. If you've tuned in before, you know what they are. If you haven't, you don't want to miss them. But enough about me. Uh, Welcome to Outstanding Women Leader, Emily Clark, the global talent lead at the world's largest asset manager, oversees a 1,200-person team spearheading the talent strategy. She meticulously manages the employee life cycle, focusing on career development, employee sentiment, and succession planning. Dedicated to transparency and talent processes, Emily evolves efficiencies to empower employees in achieving their career goals. Armed with a master's in industrial organizational psychology, she applies a scientific approach to workplace challenges, sourcing solutions for individual team and organizational success. Emily is also the co-founder and principal at Rising Momentum, a consulting firm dedicated to helping professionals elevate their career through tailored coaching and training. With a diverse background in finance, healthcare, manufacturing, and real estate, Emily's multifaceted experiences shape her sharp focus on diverse thought and varied experiences. This ensures she delivers robust, innovative solutions to complex workplace challenges, highlighting her commitment to excellence and effectiveness in talent management across evolving industries. Welcome, Emily. Thank you. What an intro. <laughs> Ooh, what, a, what a CV that you have. You know, how does, take me back to little Emily. Where does little Emily say, I would like to grow up and guide talent and develop talent for people? <laughs> wow. Little Emily did not have this dream. This is not anything related to what I thought I was going to be doing. If you asked me probably at four years old, I wanted to be a Walmart cashier. That was my biggest dream in the world. And then at 15, I wanted to be a police detective, which definitely didn't turn out to what I do today. We get to college and I actually was on a scholarship at East Tennessee State University where I studied clinical psychology and I was doing research with the VA in Tennessee to understand why veterans did not want to disclose their PTSD symptoms. Spoiler alert, it's called stigma. And so I was doing all of that in college, found out very quickly that I'm a person who takes on what I'm working on. And so the depression, anxiety, and the PTSD symptoms I was seeing in veterans, I started to see in myself. And I quickly said, "Mm, we got to pivot. And so I love psychology. And I said, okay, how can I do something psychological that's going to make an impact and not destroy my life in the process? And I found I.O., So stumbled upon IO, I was working in manufacturing at the time, actually making COVID-19 test kits for clinical trials. And the people I worked with hated their jobs. I mean, absolutely 
hated their jobs. And I went to my boss, who was the plant menu, like the director of operations. And I said, why do these people hate their jobs? We have to figure this out. This is not a way to live. And he said, okay, if you can figure it out, you can do a solution for it, put it in practice and see how it goes. And I very quickly said, bet you're on, let's go. <laughs> um, and I, I figured it out somewhat, not all the way, but somewhat I figured it out, started implementing small changes and solutions. I even was able to help my team get a raise, which as an admin, that was huge to get people a 50 to a $1.25 raise dependent upon their role and landed at the University of Georgia, go dogs, and got a master's in IO psych. Mm, I just have to take a quick minute to talk about how I also Detective K was what I wanted to be when I was a kid. And I didn't want to be a Walmart cashier. I wanted to be a waitress. So I could take your order and then I could deliver it for you. Uh, I love that. We're very aligned. Very similar here. Very similar. <laughs> um, and I didn't go the psych route, interestingly enough, because my dad has an, his undergrad in psych and I could have done that. Uh, but I, yeah, very interested in that. Once again, the, the one lines and the research, I love it. So you accidentally land where you landed and now you have this, uh, um, opportunity to co-found this company and start bringing some of that magic sauce that you bring to the big corporate world, to the, uh, career to college track or college to career track. <laughs> <laughs> Either way it goes both ways. Yeah. Um, what did you find along this process? Um, like, what are you finding some of the biggest challenges in corporate? What is the reason that people hate their jobs? Oh my goodness. I do not want our podcast to be five hours because it easily could be a five hour conversation. So I'll try to do a highlight reel off the top of my head. I think that the biggest challenge with people disliking what they do for a living is that when we're in primary school and then we articulate into college, a lot of times we're going based off of that first passion that we have. And then we get stuck in college classes and it's too late down the road to realize and change our minds and go back and correct. As well as we get into the real world and we start working and we realize that what we went to school for is not what we dreamed of doing. And so we go down this path of we're stuck, right? We're stuck. We're now working. We hate it. There's no out. I can't go back to college. That's too expensive. I can't shift gears because my resume says this is what my credentials are in and we're stuck. And so people hate their jobs because they're stuck doing something that is not what they envisioned it to be. That would be first and foremost, which is why I'm personally really passionate about getting to early careers early, right? Getting to early career professionals before they get there, but also because we can't know what we don't know. That's that's just science, that math, math. And so I think that people also get into careers where they assume that they were going to be able to assimilate or progress at a quicker rate than they really can. And what we're seeing now is that people are getting in ruts, if you will. And so they're sitting in careers and positions where they can't easily attain promotion, where they can't quickly evolve and move up. And if we look back at just the fundamentals of schooling, particularly here in the United States, every single year you evolve to the next level if you're on track, right? We are in a society of which we raise our children that if you take a test and you pass it, you go to the next grade level. Every year you are achieving something, whether or not it's explicitly stated. 
in the corporate world, that is not how it works. And so what we're seeing with younger professionals coming in is they're not achieving and attaining at the same rate that they previously were for the entirety of their life. And they're burning out quickly because milestones are moving without them being attainable, as well as this is not what they've ever experienced. They've never walked into school and been told you're going to sit in eighth grade for five years and then you'll get to go to ninth. That's how corporate America works. And so rewiring and re-understanding how the corporate world works as a whole is really important for those younger professionals. Mm. And for those listening that don't know what IO is, and and I apparently has something to do with psychology, tell us all about that. <laughs> oh my goodness. So industrial organizational psychology, as I lovingly call it, and most IOs will call it IO, is the scientific study of how human behavior shows up in the workplace. So what we look at in the workplace is what motivates individuals, what makes people be good co-workers, what makes them have organizational citizenship behaviors, right? What makes people a good, communi- a good community citizen is what makes them a good corporate citizen. Those things overlap. And so what I do is I look at different factors in the workplace, compensation, motivation, engagement, environment, and I go back to companies and I help them rework those factors in order to drive the highest productivity out of their talent while simultaneously increasing the experience that employees have. Mm. That sounds challenging. You're, you know, getting... (laughs) No, it's a kickball. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> See, their phone agrees with me. They're like, we need to phone a friend on this one. This sounds tough. Oh, goodness. Okay. Hang on. Uh, what I love while you work that out is <laughs> that, you know, you're helping people, everyone experience a job they love. You're helping individuals to create this um, job that they love. That sounds like a really big task. Yes, it is a very big task. Um, And it's not always perfectly executed, right? I think that another thing that I say often in my work environment is that what I studied in school and the textbook process of how things should be done and achieved is not applicable to the real world. Human behavior is not an experiment. It is live. It is sometimes challenging, it's sometimes terrible, it's sometimes great. And so inevitably what I do, I'm working with humans who are in most often challenging and very complex situations is a complex task. And so my job typically takes a lot longer for output, if you would, than you would think of in a traditional work setting. So what I'm doing is typically year-long projects because it takes a while for me to understand the human behavior at play, how to change and adapt the corporate environment to match the human behavior, how to bring the human behavior into the corporate environment and kind of shake it up a little bit, and then how to make those cohesively mesh in order to get that output that's being looked for by both the human and the company. Ah, Emily, the alchemist, that might be a fun (laughs) little title that you want to bring to yourself because what you're really talking about is a secret sauce. You're talking about turning in a disgruntled employee in a, an environment that maybe feels like it does, they feel like they're doing fine. And you're talking about mixing them up and somehow creating this environment now that's different. Yeah, it definitely is a science, right? And 
I'm very grateful. IO psychology was actually not recognized as a science by the STEM industry until a year ago. So if you notice, my degree actually says a master's of arts. It does not say a master's of science, but I will argue with anyone mm-hmm. go that what I do is a science. <laughs> yeah. Well, I like to tell people that science has a tendency to reflect the thinking of society. Um, <laughs> so it sounds like it's, it's, it tracks for you, right? Unfortunately, uh, science doesn't always challenge it. It just reflects the thinking of it. How are you bringing in some of that challenging the, the thinking into your science, which is why I prefer art, by the way, because art does challenge the thinking. Yes, art does challenge the thinking and art definitely leaves room for creativity, which sometimes science does not. And so I think that art is definitely applicable to what I do as well. The way that I most often am challenging and creating change, stirring up things, is I get people to look at it from different perspectives. It's natural human behavior to lean into things from your one perspective versus going into it, assuming positive intent from all the other parties, assuming goodwill, right? We go into things with our our blinders on. We are humans. That's how we interact with other humans. And so the biggest way that I can shake things up is to level the playing field and make no preconceived notions. So typically when I start a project, I go in and I level set with everybody that I need them to leave their perceptions and opinions at the door for at least the beginning parts of the project, right? Let me sell you on what we're doing. Let's hear all of the evidence, all of the facts And then we'll start to bring in opinions. So that's probably the number one way that I stir things up at work. I think that I also naturally, as we discussed, am a more, I will challenge people and I will be a little bit combative. And so I work in a predominantly male dominated industry. And a lot of times I will have people that come in and they'll say, well, it's always been done this way. Or this is the legacy of our company. And I say, great, throw it out the window. I genuinely don't care. (laughs) I have no cares in the world. We're changing that thinking, right? This is the 21st century. Um, Yeah, it's 21st still. (laughs) It's the 21st century and things are changing. And you need to be a part of that change or you will be left behind. Mm. And so leveling, leveling the playing field for you now looks like rising momentum. Talk a little bit about how you're leveling the playing field for the college kid coming out that doesn't even know what's happening in the corporate world. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so rising momentum is actually my business partner and I, Shana. We really were passionate. We work with early careers professionals in our day-to-day jobs, right? So in our corporate jobs, we're helping young professionals come straight out of college into the world's largest asset manager and quickly assimilate and become a part of our culture. And what we found is there was things that people just genuinely didn't understand, right? They would come out of college and I had one person quite literally look at me and say, is there a syllabus? And I was like, no, there's not a syllabus. We do have jobs responsibilities. We also have objectives for your role and we have performance reviews. Let's talk about how those things overlap and how they don't. And so we really started rising momentum because we wanted to get those college students more aware of what they were going to be facing and how they could connect it to things that they knew in order to be more successful, right? If I can connect the fact that a performance review, objective setting, and the 30, 60, 90 day plan that I'm giving given on day one is similar to a syllabus. I can connect that in my brain and connect the dots and say, okay, I got this, right? Like 
it's going to be a little bit different, but I've done this before. And so we're bringing that knowledge to college students who are graduating, as well as just things that you should know, right? Where are the overlaps between academia and corporate? Where are the disconnects? Because there's a lot of overlaps and disconnects. Yeah. I was always passionate as a high school teacher about, I can't get in your backpack and go to college with you. So let me equip you for being successful there. And you're talking about, Hey, I can't get in your briefcase and go to your job with you. Let me help make sure that you're successful there. Right. <laughs> hmm. And I, I think, Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Off. I was going to say, I definitely think that some of the things that we carry with us through primary school into higher education and then furthermore into grad school if people take that route is we assume the role of a student and you're inevitably having to almost like shed that layer of skin when you walk into corporate because while you're always going to be a student of what you're doing in the corporate environment you have to become a professional in order to Mm. be seen as a professional and that's where a lot of early career professionals go wrong is they don't shed that layer of skin of I am a student and put on the coat of I am a professional. They mm. just throw the coat over their shoulder and they're like tiptoeing in. Mm. It doesn't work well. Yeah. So what would be your advice then for someone that let's say they're in that sophomore year of their career and sophomore year means it's taken five years to get there because you sit in a fresh as a freshman for a much longer And now they're, and they're being told constantly, well, this is the way things work around here. How do you support someone that is like, I want to grow and I want to learn and I don't want a lateral move. And then corporate says, but yeah, but that's how, and you're an individual that says, yeah, but there's an exception to every rule. (laughs) (laughs) There is an exception to every rule. I'm a firm believer in this. I'm also a firm believer that every corporate workplace is not the corporate workplace for everyone. Mm. right? That's a big thing. I, I get a lot of heat for this. So this might be a hot take. I am a big believer in playing the game, right? It is how I am the age that I am in the position that I am in at this point in my life. So I do wholeheartedly believe that at some level, at some point, if you want to make it to the top, you have to play the game. It exists for a reason. And I think the only way to change the game is to make it to the top of the game, right? I can't change the game right now. I'm still playing it, right? I am still a pawn in this game called chess. And so until I take that king spot on the board, I got to keep playing. And so I think that really whenever you're a young professional and you feel like you're stuck and you're not sure where to go, the first place to look and the first place to really start to hone in on is the corporate environment in which you sit because every corporate environment is different and that makes the game different. So if you're not enjoying the game that you're playing, Mm -hmm. change game, right? You can go from checkers to chess and that changes everything because those are two totally different games at two different extreme levels. And so I think you first look at your environment, you look at your company, is your company a very established tenured company, which is going to change the environment, right? If it's a company that's been around for over a century, it, it things are different. If it's a company that's been around for 20, 30 years, there's still some younger people at the top. If it's a startup, you're probably can walk into the office with no shoes. And that's a whole other game that like, I have no clue how to play yet. 
So I think look at the game first, right? What game are you playing and figure out, is this the game that you want to be playing? Because if it's not, then you need to change and change the company that you're with, change the firm that you're with, change the sector that you're in, right? Are you in nonprofit? Are you in corporate? Are you in education? What sector are you in? Change that. That's the first place to look. Hmm. I like that advice because what you're talking about is that all careers are a game. And I think gamification is something that's where it's so hard because we tell kids like, what do you want to be when you grow up? But we we should tell kids is what game do you want to play when you grow up? Yeah. What game (laughs) do you want to (laughs) play? I chose Uh, chess. It is not the game for everyone. I want to like that is not forever. Yeah. I chose um, write your own game rules and then implement those rules and, and adjust them as you go. Like the, I like the Billy Madison version of this. Or not Billy Madison. What was that movie? When Big Daddy, when he's like, what's the name? I win. What's the name of this game? I win. Because every time I play it, I win. I have my own company and uh, startups is like where I'm familiar. But what I love what you're saying about the game of, well, maybe the company could be at another 140 year old company, but perhaps their game is different. Right. And companies and games are evolving at different speeds. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's based off of a lot of times, what industry are you in? If you're in technology right now, you are evolving rapidly. If you are in real estate, Real estate is probably out of pause right now, right? There's not a whole lot of game happening in the real estate world because the market is so bad. And so it could also be timing. It could be the external factors that are affecting the game in the moment. If you're in the political space, your game is going like super speed at the moment. So you have to take into consideration all of the external factors that are influencing your corporate environment or your non corporate, whatever it may be. And you have to say, okay, is it that my environment is wrong? Is it that I'm at the wrong company? Is it that I'm not really aligned with the passion of what I'm doing anymore? You have to take into consideration a lot of different factors to then pinpoint what actually needs to change. Mm, yeah. Perhaps the game you're playing would be more fun if you had a boyfriend. <laughs> right. <laughs> like I say that sometimes <laughs> to my clients, like, well, like, you know, you've all, what, what else would you, what other game could you play better? If you just wreck if you, uh, I like the set it and forget it game, you know, when you're at sophomore year of your career, this is where people get really antsy on wanting to move forward, where mm-hmm. sometimes that's your opportunity of, well, why don't you set it and forget it for a minute and go work on the other game that you suck at right now? I played tennis so in college. So I'm very much about, I played an individual game and I played a doubles partner game. And those are two different mindsets and two different framings around how you want to show up. Absolutely. Mm. And for those of us, you know, what I find in the corporate game, I'd love to hear your advice here is women are fairly new in the corporate game, right? It takes us a while to, to get there. And then we get there and those women become Sheryl Sandberg's who gatekeep. And all of a sudden, if you want to get here, well, I got here and here's how I did it. I got a master's degree. I went to an Ivy League school. That's what you need to do. And so now you become, you know, there's this article that's out there about super token, but we forget that you can be in a white Emily Clark with her coffee and still be a super token because women in industries are still rare. How do you get there and not be that person that accidentally gatekeeps and says, listen, here's how I did it. This is how it has to be. And also, how do you crack open that person that accidentally became a gatekeeper on their way to the top? So the Iowa side of me says that we're humans 
and we let factors externally jade us, right? We let the people who gatekept us, be that men or women or non-binary royalty, I love it all. Um, We let them put labels and put pressures on us that then we somehow begin to attach as credentials Mm -hmm. to what other people are working towards, just like you were saying. And so I think that there's two major ways that we have to overcome this. Whenever we're assimilating ourselves and we're growing and we're progressing in our careers, you have to have humility checks. And to me personally, in my career, in my life, both professionally and personally, that is the people around me. My husband is my number one person that I check in with. And I have told him from day one, I need you to always do a humanity check on me and be like, girl, humble yourself real quick. What are we doing? when I get out of line. And so having those accountability partners are really important. Find those people that are going to hold you to your integrity, that are going to hold you accountable to who you are as an individual and not let you slip out of that, regardless of what title you have, how much money you're making, where you live, it doesn't matter. I think for the people that have gotten there and now are unconsciously becoming those gatekeepers, it's a matter of learning how to manage up, right? And that's a really hard thing that sometimes and somehow has gotten a negative connotation in certain situations, and it shouldn't. Managing up is a really important skill, but being able to articulate to someone, you are gatekeeping me, possibly and most likely because you were gatekept, is a problem, Right. And saying that to someone and saying not necessarily the way to go at it is not. Well, times have changed. That Don't don't start conversations <laughs> like that. Pro tip. Don't do it. But instead saying, hey, I want to understand what it took you to get here and what that might look like for me and my journey. Right. What are things that are going to look different between the two of us? What are things that are going to look the same? I would tell anyone coming up behind me. I have a master's degree. You don't necessarily need that. Although I do wholeheartedly put a lot of weight behind that because of the research and the knowledge that it gave me. You don't necessarily need that. If you came up with more of an HR background, if you've always been someone who's very keen on people's behavior and intellect, that might not be necessary for you. So checking in with those people at the top and having very candid conversations and guiding it in a way that they come to the intuition themselves that they are gatekeeping mm-hmm. without even realizing it. Yeah. You know, I did not get my master's or my PhD, but I have coached a thousand people and uh, that's a lot of data. I have also a degree in history, so I know how to hold data and research data and find trends and patterns. And part of, there was several instances that kept me from my master's. Uh, My mom had a few heart attacks. Uh, My ex-husband had a kidney transplant, like life got in the way. And then when I probably could have had a good opportunity to go back, I went a different, I went the experience education route. I love that you had mentioned, I think in our bonus episode, maybe it was here, but textbooks are not always applicable to the real world. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And by the time I end this year, you know, um, there's three different levels of coaches. Like I could take a test and have an MCC, or I could just, I have the equivalency. I've spent that much research. And part of what I hope to be as that role model is to show that, I'm ready to open doors that normally PhDs open and master's degrees open so that we start to understand that humans are our next AI. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And 
you can't, uh, I didn't do any of my research in a school setting, but I have a foundation of how to conduct research. So qualitative data and quantitative data are some of my favorite types of data. <laughs> but qualitative data is one of those that's a little harder. Well, I guess Brene is pretty good at manipulating it, but I think it's harder to manipulate qualitative data than it is quantitative, which is what I imagine a lot of your research was in as well, which is why it took a while to get to the science part. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely being able to parse that out, right? Being able to take that all in in a mass chunk and really digest it and then drive throughput of this is what that means is a is a different skill set. And so I think that that is definitely part of the reason that it was IO was not recognized as STEM in general and why a lot of times people will get me crazy when I say I'm a scientist. But I think also we don't value research the same when it's not officially credentialed, right? So we don't look at your thousands and thousands of hours of coaching and say, yeah, that's equivalent. It's not what we've been wired by society to do. And so there's a lot of societal norms that we're rewriting and we're breaking to say, this does matter. This is just as equal, right? In a job description, one of my favorite things as an IO these days is to see when somebody says, a four-year degree is preferred, but equivalent experience is also accepted. Yeah. That line on a job description to me is golden. The recognition that someone can come in with a degree or the experience and it be viewed the same is huge. One of my best leaders to this day was someone who did not have any college education. Yep. You'll see that. And someone that taught for seven years and 180 students every year. I mean, you want to, those kids are 35 now. Like you want to talk about some good data and research about how people show up and behave and taking kids that are, that want to learn something. I love that you're bringing more of that as you continue to climb the corporate ladder, that you're not going to be using that same lens, particularly because you're over there fighting for my, the scientist. I love that part. I always say that too. I'm like a scientist of like, if you understand how statistics and science and data and collection work and you understand, yeah, that's a, it's a way for you to un recognize that experience is still research. Yeah. Always. And you don't <laughs> have, yeah. And you don't have that like hypothesis, like I'm not trying to prove a hypothesis, you know, what can happen in PhD research is it's my favorite. This is their life's work. Oh, well, shit. If they woke up tomorrow and discovered that they were wrong, their entire life's work feels pretty meaningless. Where for you, your job when you do stuff is to prove yourself wrong. I'm going down a rabbit hole and I'm looking for information. <laughs> right. And this wiring of, you know, I think immediately, which I'm going to nerd out for a second. I think a lot of like P hacking in the psychology world, which is whenever researchers adjust their P values mm. to reach significance below 0.5, because that's what the industry standard has been set at. And so what we found a few years back when I was an undergrad was the replication crisis, which is where we were taking major scientific studies in the psychological world and we could not replicate them. And the reason that they are not replicable is because they were lies, right? And like we found out that these scientists who had put their entirety into this work of their life's work were saying in the end, you know what, I'm going to have to lie about this in order for it to be considered significant and for me to get published and for me to get tenure out of college and all of the things right and now we have put so much value in that that we can't look at ourselves and say you know what I was wrong and 
great that I was wrong. Like, hell yeah, I was wrong and now I can fix it and there's a new solution. And tomorrow I might be right or I might be wrong again. And that's fantastic. And now people know why the science keeps changing. (laughs) That's right. So my favorite. Yeah. And the other, when you're not in a lab and you're like, when you're in the real world, there's no, uh, faking that. My kids either passed their AP exam or they didn't. My students either went to college and graduated or they didn't. You're not talking about bubbles. So I I love that you even bring to light that because some academics will shy away. I do for hours. I know you have this real life you have to get back to. What is your superpower? (laughs) (laughs) I would hands down say that my superpower is my optimism. And I say this because I am not a toxic positivity person by any stretch. When shit is shit, I will tell you. That is a fact about me. However, I am very, very keen to the fact that we have control wholeheartedly over our perspective and over our emotions. And so if I let the shit sink in and I hold on to that and I don't ever let it go, then I'm going to feel terrible. And so my superpower is saying, you know what, I'm going to set a timer and I'm going to feel this shit for a second and then I'm going to let it go and we're going to keep it moving. And so when I walk in, people know at work, they're like, you're always so happy. And it's like, I'm choosing this. This is my choice to show up happy and to show up authentic. Now there's days where I don't, right? I'm human, but that is my superpower. Yeah. Now your superpower is going to be letting people know when you are. <laughs> yes. Now that way they don't say. misinterpret your energy. <laughs> yeah. There's shit in the background, just so you know. <laughs> mm. What's your purpose? Mm. I would say that I probably have two purposes. And I think one of them is more recent than the other, which I'll explain. Um, my purpose as an individual is to help people achieve their career goals and dreams by understanding them. And by attaining them through the resources that are available to them. That will be my first purpose. I think my second purpose is one that my husband and I are very passionate about. It's because my husband and I come from two very different backgrounds. And that is creating generational wealth and financial well-being for generations to come. And that's very much related to rising momentum, right? Of helping college students understand what does that college loan look like? How do I take the degree that I just earned and make something of it and get a career where I can afford a house and pay off my student loans and drive a car and have a family. So that generational and financial well-being is something that my husband and I share really closely. And we've dedicated parts of our life to that, both as a couple and as individuals. And what's next for you? Oh my goodness. Wow. What's next for me? Oh my gosh. You know, I don't have an answer to that. And mm. I'm perfectly okay with that. Mm. Maybe a rabbit hole of human design, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> there is that. I will fall down a rabbit hole of anything. Um, I think what's next for me is definitely evolving who I am as a human. I have spent the early parts of my 20s fully dedicated to my career. I went to grad school while working a full-time job and I'm only a year and a half out of grad school. So I have been churning and burning, if you will, in the corporate world for about four years now. And I'm a little bit tired. Um, And so I think that for me over the next two years, it's really dedicating some time back to myself to figure out the holes that have Mm. started to exist as well as areas that I just 
want to be a better human in. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing your time with us today. Where can people connect with you if they want to learn more about IO or Rising Momentum? They can find me on LinkedIn. I am Emily Ann Clark and is A-N-N-E. And I think there's a dash between those names. Um, <laughs> but Emily Clark, I'm listed as an IO psych practitioner. So you should be able to find me pretty easy. Um, and that's the best place. Excellent. And I always leave my guests the last word of the day for any for what you want to leave our listeners with. Mm. I will leave individuals with the last word of persist. A fun fact about me is I have the word persist tattooed on my body. That is how much it means to me. And so I hope that everyone persist in whatever it is 